welcome to the latest podcast from the Stevenson Howard employment team. Don't forget that you can subscribe to the whole series on iTunes, Stitcher and SoundCloud or by visiting our website at www.shlegal.com. My name's Beth Hale and I'm a senior associate. I have with me Parvis Garni, an employment partner, and today we're going to look at three recent cases and their practical implications for employers. The first case we'll look at is the Court of Appeal decision in Newcastle-upon-Tyne NHS Foundation Trust and Haywood. This looked at the issue of when notice of termination of an employment contract takes effect. The second case is the Court of Appeal decision in O'Brien and Bolton St Catherine's Academy, which looked at unfair dismissal following long-term sickness absence and what an employer needs to consider when faced with this situation and assessing medical evidence. The final case is another Court of Appeal decision in Adashina and St George's University Hospital's NHS Foundation Trust. This case looked at dismissal for gross misconduct in the context of resistance to organisational change. So, Parvis, to start off with, we're going to look at the Court of Appeal decision in Newcastle-upon-Tyne NHS Foundation Trust in Haywood. Just very briefly, what was the case about? So this case concerned Mrs Haywood, who was Associate Director of Business Development at Newcastle-upon-Tyne NHS Foundation Trust. Now, she was placed at risk of redundancy. She was eventually given notice of termination, and the issue that arose was when had her notice taken effect... And therefore, when was the date of the termination of her employment contract? The reason why this was important was because the answer to this question had a significant impact on the level of her pension payments. So, Mrs Haywood would have received an enhanced pension if her employment terminated on or after her 50th birthday, which was the 20th of July 2011. So, to avoid this increased liability, the Trust would have to have given her notice of termination to her before the 27th of April 2011. So her employer tried to deliver 12 weeks notice of termination while she was on holiday. They tried to deliver it by way of three separate letters. One was sent by recorded delivery, one was sent by ordinary post and one was sent by email to her husband's email address. Now the recorded delivery letter was eventually delivered to Mrs Haywood's house on the 26th of April and Mrs Haywood opened it on her return from holiday on the 27th of April. She did not open the email sent to her husband's email address until later. Now the decision given by the Court of Appeal is rather confusing and we have two judges reaching the same conclusion for different reasons and one judge disagreeing altogether. But the Court of Appeal essentially took the view that notice of termination was not effective until Mrs Haywood personally received the notice letter. So although this arrived at her home on the 26th of April, she only personally took delivery of this on the 27th of April. This meant that she had been employed up to and including the key date of the 20th of July, which meant that she was therefore entitled to her enhanced pension. So what would you say were the key takeaway points from this case for employers? So, as I mentioned, this is a confusing decision and the analysis is far from satisfactory, but I'm going to focus on four practical points. Now, the first and most crucial point is that the key message from this case is that in order to be certain that an employee has been given notice effectively must ensure that the employee knows they have been given notice. So when giving notice of termination, where possible, avoid doing it by post or email. It is much better to give notice in person, or at least verbally. That should be supported by written confirmation, obviously, which can then be handed over to the individual at a meeting. So if the person's away, then you can contact them by telephone if possible and communicate the decision and say that you will follow up with a letter. Now, the second point is when looking at your employment contracts, make sure your contracts have clear provisions on when notice is deemed to have been received. You can insert a provision that says an employee will be deemed to have received a letter a certain number of days after posting. You can also have provisions dealing with service of notice by email. 
Now, Mrs. Hayward's contract had no such terms, and hence this entire dispute arose. So this is a really important drafting point, and one which is often overlooked in contracts. So if this clause had existed in the Hayward case, the dispute may have not arisen, and it certainly does not harm to have such a clause in the contract. The third point is make sure your employment records are updated regularly and you have up-to-date contact details for employees. A big problem here was that they sent the email to the employee's husband's email address. Now, the Court of Appeal did not accept that sending the husband's email address was valid service. So it's useful to have personal email addresses for employees, particularly if they are not provided with mobile devices on which they can receive work emails. And fourth point, finally, before starting any redundancy process, check whether employees are going to be absent at any time during the process, whether on holiday, family leave, or even travelling for business. Plan in advance how you will deal with this to avoid last-minute issues like the one that arose in the Hayward case. Thanks, Pavis. Moving on to the next case of O'Brien and Bolton St Catherine's Academy, another Court of Appeal judgment. And what was this case about? In this case, Mrs O'Brien was on sick leave for over a year due to an incident during which she was assaulted by a student at the school. Now, following this incident, she suffered with anxiety, depression and post-traumatic stress disorder. The school obtained medical evidence and there was no indication of a return to work. They eventually implemented a formal capability process and dismissed Mrs O'Brien on the basis of her length of absence, the fact that there was no prognosis indicating a likely return in the near future, and a concern that her condition may reoccur in the future. She appealed, and at the internal appeal meeting, she presented medical evidence stating that she was fit to return to work. However, the school was not satisfied, and they upheld the dismissal. She then went to a tribunal. She brought claims for unfair dismissal and discrimination arising from a disability. She was successful at tribunal, and this case then went all the way up to the Court of Appeal. Now, the Court of Appeal held that the dismissal was unfair and constituted discrimination arising from a disability. They found this to be a borderline case and they did have some sympathy with the school, but they were critical of the school's failure properly to consider medical evidence presented at the internal appeal hearing, as well as its failure to provide evidence about the impact her absence had on the school and its pupils. So what are the key takeaway points from this case for employers? Right, firstly... Employees should consider all medical evidence carefully and at all stages during a dismissal process. They should seek second opinions or clarification if appropriate or if something is not clear. Now, don't always take things at face value or blindly accept opinions if there are con- contradictory views. Now, Rather than focusing on the length of the absence, the employee should also look at the impact that absence has on the business and provide evidence of the disruption or any other adverse impact. Don't focus just on the financial impact, but also on the impact on colleagues, clients, managing workflow, etc. Had evidence of this been provided by the school, the court may well have taken a different view and accepted that it could not wait any longer for Mrs O'Brien to return to work. So if an employee asserts at the appeal stage that they are well enough to return and has medical evidence to back this up, the employer will need to consider it and verify this evidence. And be prepared to obtain your own medical evidence at this stage if needed. If you can't wait for the return of the employee, then be prepared to justify this and give reasons. Set this out in the dismissal letter. Finally, we're going to look at another unfair dismissal case decided by the Court of Appeal, this time focusing on what constitutes gross misconduct. And this is the case of Adashina and St George's University Hospital's NHS Foundation Trust. Can you just tell us briefly what this case was about? Yes, this case concerned an employee who was a manager within the trust and was dismissed for having failed to cooperate with, support or lead a structural change in the service in which she worked. Now, the case went all the way up to the Court of Appeal and it found that the dismissal was fair in all the circumstances. And what are the key takeaway points from this case? 
while the case was to a certain extent particular on its facts, the judgment is helpful in that it confirms that resistance to or obstruction of organisational change can constitute gross misconduct warranting dismissal. And of course, in this case, the employee was dismissed for gross misconduct. So this is quite useful for employers who have to deal with difficult employees who refuse to cooperate with the restructuring exercise or other reorganisation, particularly where that employee in question is in a managerial position and should be working with the employer to execute the process. The other point is that employers should also handle such cases with care and should not jump to dismiss if the conduct does not warrant it. But there will be circumstances where the failure to cooperate is so serious as to mean that the organisational change cannot progress while the employee in question remains in post. Thanks, Parvis. And that brings us to the end of this episode for June. A reminder again that you can subscribe to our podcast series on iTunes, Stitcher or SoundCloud. Thanks again for listening. <laughs>